Hey, this is Tim Whitmire. Welcome to the Liner Notes podcast with uh, with my friend uh, Sweeper Boy Chuck Price. Um, we want to give you a little heads up before we get going here. Um, we're going to play some lyrics and music during this uh, episode that might not be entirely kid friendly. So, if you're listening in the car or you're under eighteen, you've been warned. This is Tim Whitmire, and I'm Chuck Price. And this is the Liner Notes Podcast, where two friends talk about all kinds of music in all kinds of ways. All right, we're back with episode three of the Liner Notes Podcast, linerpodcast at gmail.com for all your, uh, your feedback. Uh, Chuck and I continue to get good feedback about these, as well as Frank. I think Frank's getting good feedback about these as well. Frank says yes. Um, so we're going to keep doing them, and uh, we're going to keep rolling along and uh, try to keep kind of a monthly cadence on this. And if Frank feels good about it, we feel good about it. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, so we're back, and uh, we want to we want to tie up a couple of loose ends from the covers podcast, which was episode two. So if you really want to know what we're talking about, go back and listen to that one first, and then uh, you can listen to this. Um, but I, I did want to we we issued a call to people at the end of that one saying. Hey, if you've got better covers than what we gave you, or covers that you think we missed and didn't talk about, send them send them our way. And uh, Chuck, what'd you, what'd you hear from the people? Uh, had some nice feedback. Um, you know, Drew Dixon out there sent a bunch, um, which I appreciate. I think one was like Cake doing War Pigs, maybe, and a few others. Then a good buddy of mine, Thomas Arnold, pointed out that I completely missed John Coltrane doing my favorite things from A Sound of Music, which is just a beautiful um, jazz piece. Yeah, I mean, that almost sort of transcends covers to be just like sort of its own piece of beautiful music. Um, And even today, I forgot one because I was in the car with my oldest, Ella, who is currently going down a Pink Floyd rabbit hole. Mm. And I pulled out the Scissor Sisters doing a dance slash techno version of Comfortably Numb, which I dig. So one of the things I noticed with that, since you brought Pink Floyd up, was that latter, like, I think of Pink Floyd in two stages. I think of sort of the wall era Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon era Pink Floyd, you know, sort of 70s Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And then I think the late 80s, they put out a couple of albums that got, you know, the videos got played a lot on MTV. Those late 80s songs seem to be really popular for covers. I'm not quite sure why, because I don't, I think of that as the sort of the lesser stage of Pink Floyd. Do you, you have any thoughts on that? Why that huh. might be? You know, I don't know, mate. That's a good question. I honestly don't, because... Yeah. You know, I kind of look at it, they had their psychedelic phase up through the 70s and then, I, you know, through Dark Side. And then I think the wall kicks in to their rock phase. And it might be just because it's easier to probably cover, mm. you know, um, something off of, uh, what is it, Distant Sound of Thunder versus, yeah. you know, um, you know, Saucer Full of Secrets. Okay, okay. <laughs> but obviously Pink Floyd's a whole nother podcast for us. That's, yeah, and that's a whole rabbit hole to go down of its own. Um Cool. Well, um, and then we got um, our mutual friend Chuck Thompson chimed in to say that he does think there is an uncoverable song and he believes it's Stairway to Heaven. And, and I happen to agree with him. And he's absolutely right. And if you guys remember from the last one, Tim threw that question out. Is there a song that's uncoverable? uncoverable? And I'll admit I was stumped and we kind of sat here and stared at each other for a few seconds and neither of us could come up with anything. And I just got a text earlier today from Chuck Thompson who was like dude stairway can't do it and he's absolutely right 
So my, my theory on that, and I would actually put American Pie by Don mm. McLean in, in the same category, is that those songs are uncoverable. You talked last time about how you know a cover doesn't work if it's a straight parody. And those songs have become such cultural icons that they're almost self-parodies in a way, and therefore any cover of those songs becomes itself a parody of a parody. And Yeah, or you just look at it like even if you were trying to play Stairway straight up as this homage, you can't do it without probably feeling like a parody. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and just that whole thing of like, if you're going to, okay, so we're going to do Stairway to a reggae beat now. It's, it well, feels... speaking of, uh, uh-oh. there's a band out there called Dread Zeppelin, which is basically a reggae band with an Elvis impersonator lead singer that does Zeppelin songs basically set to reggae beats. And I'm pretty sure they do, they shit, they might do Stairway. I'll have to go look that up, but Dread Zeppelin. Okay, so that's actually turns out thing. to be a perfect segue into what we're talking about yes. today because that band itself is a mashup. Right. And we're going to be talking about mashups today. So you, you, that's a mashup of Elvis plus Bob Marley plus yeah. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. It, it was an unintended segue, <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. So here we are. So look, um, what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to talk about another of Chuck's favorite genres. And this is one that um, for you, those of you Christmas mix listeners out there, shows up frequently on the, the Christmas mix, um, and that's the mashup. And there's a little bit, mashups are a little less straightforward, there's a little more history to them developmentally than covers. So we're going to kind of, I'm going to kind of get Chuck to walk through kind of the evolution of, we all know what a cover is, it's singing another song, singing a song or putting a new twist on a song that was originated by somebody else, kind of went through that, covered that well last time. Um, but from there, um, we've got a long history, I would argue probably going back to the 70s and the disco era, of DJs remixing original songs and kind of putting a new twist on them. So define a remix for us. Well, a remix is just, it's, it's the original work done differently. So, you know, the big thing in the, you know, in the early 80s was when you came out with these 12-inch remixes. And I remember back when I was like in seventh grade, like one of my favorites was when somebody, you know, did a remix of Duran Duran's The Reflex. Yep. And, yep. You, and you can add stuff to it, but it's still that one song. So the remix is really just the original song expanded or reformed. And, and frequently, I mean, I remember like, I listened to a lot of New Order in the 80s. Like a lot of times the artists will put the remix out themselves, right? Yeah. Like, you know, here and you know, here's the, I, I will often when I do a longer run than I normally do, like I've got a five mile route and then I've got a six mile route. I'll refer to the six mile route as extended dance remix right, version right. of the, uh, of the <laughs> route. So because um, extended dance remixes were sort of a staple yeah. for a lot of, you know, B-sides back in the 80s, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's just exactly like what it says is like if you were in the production studio, you're basically taking the original mix and you're pulling out pieces, you're putting in pieces versus a whole nother thing we go down, like, you know, remixing versus remastering and, you know, a remaster things are completely different. Remastering is just going back and cleaning stuff up usually, right? It's going back and basically changing kind of the overall sheen of a song or album the mastering thing is what comes on it comes after the very end of an album process and basically it's the mixing is putting all the ingredients into the Mm -hmm. bowl Mm -hmm. of a album or a song and then the mastering is actually baking it 
Okay. Okay. And so when you remaster it, you take it out and you might, instead of baking it, you might broil it. And so that, and, and is, does that involve going back to the, going, it involves going back to the original session tapes and basically remixing it? Well, no, 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 because no. a remix would be different than a remaster. Okay, so taking the original session tapes and I'm going to turn this part up, I'm going to turn that, no? because no, that's or, the remix. Yeah. You basically take the whole thing. It's a whole other thing, which I'll, it's kind of hard to explain at times, but it's a whole, it's basically kind of the sheen that goes over a song okay. or an album. And you can change how it, you can make a song shiny, you can make it dull, you can okay. make it thick, and that's all in the mastering process, hmm. not necessarily in the individual mixed parts. And I'm just, I'm a little interested because, well, no, but I mean, <laughs> as, as you know, because we're the same age, like a lot of those seminal albums from the 80s that we grew up with, you know, U2, Joshua Tree, R.E.M., uh, uh, Out of Time, Automatic for the People, they put out 25th and 30th, yeah. 30th anniversary editions that are quote unquote remastered. And then they usually put a bunch of outtakes from right. the sessions in there too. And I'd argue, and a production professional probably might disagree with me on this, part of it is because it's easier to remaster an album than it is to remix an album. Okay. And also remixing an album gets into where you're messing with the band's work in a way. The original intent. The original intent. Yeah. The remasters were just putting a different... Again, I keep saying Sheen. No, but well, that's fair because I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm a big Tom Petty fan, and they often talk about how different Petty's sound was when he was being produced by Jeff Lynne versus um, Rick Rubin, right? So, and, right. and that's that Sheen that you're talking yeah. about. Jeff Lynne's really that's that whole yellow influence on. And, and kind of a fun fact I've just learned from when we have been recording these our Balsa Glider albums is that like mastering is a completely separate process from mixing. And that there are people out there, all they do is master. And they're considered to be like professional experts of the mastering process. So you might go work with Rick Rubin and put a whole album together, mix it. He helps mix I'm, it. I'm not going to work with Rick Rubin. You're going to maybe work with <laughs> and then, Rick and, But then when it, once it's done and you've got all the ingredients in the bowl, you might literally take that bowl and go down the street to Frank. And all he's there to do is to master it. He's a master master. He's a master master. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. Tangent. So then, so now, in and uh, again, very vividly remember this because you know we were in that eighteen to twenty-two year old time frame at that time when all music is of its most importance. Um, been about thirty years since the first kind of sampling controversies came up. So, get, tell us what a sample is. Yeah. Tell us where those came from, and then that's going to be our next step on the way to the mashup. You know. So you know, obviously, sampling is sampling goes way back, but. Um, obviously, that's where you're taking a song and you're taking bits and pieces of other songs and baking them into that song. Um, what Tim's referring to, and it just recently came up because they're trying to get their, this album onto Spotify, but it's the 30th anniversary of De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, which is probably one of my favorite hip-hop albums of all time and I think kind of a turning point in, in hip-hop. But it was also one of the first ones to just use a ton of samples they're sampling steely dan they're sampling johnny cash they're even sampling little clips from an eddie murphy concert um and they were the first ones to get 
sued by the original, uh, you know, copyright holders, which basically caused, I mean, like, I think that they wound up losing money on the album because they had to pay it. You know, I think the album might've made $5 million and had to pay out like 7 million in, uh, um, in a lawsuit money. And what's funny is now it's 30 years later and they're in this controversy with Tommy boy, who was their label at the time, because they're trying to get it on Spotify and the other streaming services, but they still haven't settled all of the suits from the original so album. Spotify's like, yeah, so it's, that. yeah, so it's a, but if you go back and listen to like, um, uh, the magic number off three feet high and rising, mm-hmm. or I know, which it has a great steely Dan sample, you know, girl, I know you, um, but that brings in, and that, that was, and the one, the place that entered the mainstream most memorably for me was the whole vanilla ice, ice, ice baby under pressure thing, right? right? That was, that was where those of us who were not quite so cool. You and, know. and that was, that was, so that's not a remix. That's not a mashup. That is purely just, he wrote this rap song and sampled the bass line to under pressure. Yep. <laughs> now but what i love is there's a clip out there of um of i of vanilla ice himself trying to defend himself yes where he's going you know i he goes yeah but theirs goes doon 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 but mine goes doon 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 and he, you know, he, he throws in like an extra 16th note there on that, which he claims, oh no. And obviously he was trying to avoid when, you know, when Brian May and party came calling, basically saying, yeah, you owe us for this. And he had to pay out for it. Right. So again, right. that was a, that's a sample. All right. And as a fellow rhythm section guy, I mean, are you sympathetic to that argument or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like that was an absolute ripoff that he had to okay. pay for. All right. You're not yeah. sympathetic to it. Then. Yeah. No, no. Okay. All right. Um, so we're not with Manila Ice on that one. All right. So. Sampling then becomes kind of, I mean, despite what De La Soul had to go through, there then become kind of rules around it. The, the whole yeah. cottage in it becomes acceptable in some ways, and so forth. And now we get into kind of late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And now we've got the mashup. Right. All right. So tell us what the mashup is. So the mashup is, and, and to be honest, I actually went back to the Googles just to see if I'm talking about this the right way. And Literally, the Wikipedia page says a mashup is a creative work, usually in the form of a song, created by blending two or more pre-recorded songs, usually by overlaying the vocal track of one song seamlessly over the instrumental track of another, to the extent that some that such works are quote unquote transformative of original content, and then. It says, you know, in the United States, they might find protection from copyright claims under the fair use doctrine of copyright law, which is debatable. Um, So, you know, uh, I think this goes before what I realized. I I can talk about what I think the first mashup was, but they talk about like back in the early 90s, this multi-instrumentalist kind of avant-garde jazz guy named John Zorn. Is he a prog jazz guy or prog jazz? P R O G or P R A G U E? He's not from he's not from the Czech Republic, um, <laughs> but he apparently on an album he took Ornette Coleman, you know, iconic jazz yeah. saxophonist, his song "Lonely Woman," and set it over the bass line to Roy Orbison's "Pretty Woman." So that apparently was the first 
example of a mashup in that sense. And like five people heard of it. Right, right. And then it goes through, you know, back in the 90s, somebody took like um, Herb Alberts and Tijuana Brass and put some public enemy over it. That's kind of funny, actually. Um, I like that. And then there became these, these DJs that went from, you know, if you think about back in the day, kind of the art of a DJ at a club and keeping the, the floor going was taking a song and letting it flow into the next song. Right, you, you, the seamlessly between the two songs, right. the transition was strong. The, the transition was strong, and that takes an art around understanding BPMs, understanding you know beats per minute and how these things fit together, also understanding, which I think is actually the, the true art to it versus the science of the BPMs coming together, is like just the vibe of this song into that song, mm-hmm. so you keep everybody going. And so, uh, but then DJ started, I think, putting more and more songs, not just flowing from one into the other. They started it earlier uh, where they were, were overlaying on each other. And so that became kind of this underground DJ club era thing. thing. thing yeah. But then I feel like the first one, at least the first one I had ever heard of was... The, mo- the modern mainstream. The modern mainstream. For modern so mainstream guys like us. In 2004, um, great DJ named Danger Mouse, and you... If you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard a bunch of his stuff. Um, he took, so let me back up. Jay-Z came out with the Black Album, seminal, groundbreaking album of his. He also released an acapella version with the idea of DJs go have at it. Just put it over whatever yeah. you want. Yeah, but I think he was thinking more from a sample. I'm not sure if he was necessarily thinking mashup, but he, I guess he probably was. So, Danger J- Mouse. Jay-Z, if you're out there and you want to come on the show and talk to us about this, <laughs> we think we can get a show yes. out of it. So, um, he took, so Danger Mouse took Jay-Z's Black Album, and I think partly because he figured out it worked, and partly because I think of the almost ironic nature of I'm going to take the Beatles white album and mash the black album up with the white album and I'm going to come up with what he called the gray album really the first one I ever heard was when Danger Mouse took uh, took Jay-Z's 99 Problems and again forgive us for where this goes lays it down over the Beatles and comes up with this if you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cask is closed. Rap critics to say he's money cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid, what type of facts are those? If you grew up with hoes in your zapatos, you celebrate the minute you was having dope. I'm like, fuck critics, you can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't like my lyrics, you can press fast forward. I beat with radio. So, you know, you can hear Helter Skelter in there and some other things. So, like, that was the first one. And it became this huge deal until everybody got sued. And they couldn't release it because of all the copyright infringements. Um, And I think that the suit itself actually brought mashups to the forefront as well. Okay. So, that's where, at least in my world, in my music Story. That's where I feel like mashups. And that, and so that was Apple Records, which is the Beatles' copyright holder, jumped all over that one and was like, Um, "Yeah, not a chance." Right. It was. uh, um, I think at the time, maybe uh, was it EMI? Hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think EMI owned the catalog, and they basically 
sent the cease and desist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, and, and Jay-Z had kind of invited it in a way, right? He had. Yeah. He had. Now, you know, I don't think he necessarily said somebody go out there and, you know, get the Beatles. <laughs> get you the know, most get, copyright protected band yeah, of them and all. Get, you know, get yeah. Paul and Ringo involved in this. Right. And, you right. know, I'm sure Yoko was out there somewhere right. doing Yoko things. So, right. anyway, that was the beginning. Okay. And so, and, and as... I can attest because you sent me a few of these and I started, you know, playing them. They're most, so first thing to say is we've, we've mentioned copyright issues a couple of times already. These mashups are generally not available on streaming services because they're DJs who are operating sort of outside the copyright laws and just sort of throwing stuff together without regard for whether they have permission to or not. Right. Yeah. And you can go to the Googles and probably find all of these. If you, yeah. you know, if you type in, you know, YouTube versus lyrics born, you know, calling on Sunday, it will come up, but it, it's not readily available to stream or to buy. And where they, and where they usually come up for me, the first hit is usually a YouTube, not music, yeah. but a YouTube, like, you know, video it, type thing. And it's, there's usually no pictures. It's just the song playing. And then of course it being YouTube, they'll serve you up another one. And all of a sudden you're down the rabbit hole of all these mashups. Right. And some are good and some are bad and some are, you're just sort of like, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah. And uh, the best ones I think are the ones that a, just the art of the actual mashing up of the songs where you take two songs that just fit over each other and create. And I think that's the key thing between a remix and sampling and all these things, a great mashup. It really becomes a third song in a way it becomes its own third song and right. i and i feel like that's what distinguishes the good ones from the bad ones so it's not just you know it's not a um it's not a medley that's yep. a key thing it's not yep. like a song flowing into another song and flowing and maybe coming back to the first song right. these songs are kind of on top of each other and and you know tim you have a great analogy of it's sort of the Reese's peanut butter exactly. thing, right? You know, it's two great tastes to take, you know, your chocolates and my peanut butter, my peanut butter. Hey, wait, this is really good. Yeah. So, and I was, I was thinking about other analogies and I was like, is it, is it like a TV crossover episode, you know, where a character from one TV show shows up on another one, but that's actually, as you pointed out, a sample, right? Yeah. Like, like um, when, when Mork showed up on happy days, it was still right. happy days, <laughs> you know, but if Mork and happy, if Mork and happy days went off and made their own show together, then right. he and Fonzie, on yeah. Orkin or whatever the plan right. was, yeah, then then we'd have our Joni loves um, Joni loves Mindy. <laughs> that would be a that would be a. <laughs> that would have been ahead of its time. A <laughs> yes, bit. it would have. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, so one of the thing, one thing maybe you can explain it to me that I just I sort of noticed was, and we were talking about you know last time we were talking about how um, the covers become a conversation between different genres and different artists. The one thing that I find kind of weird about this is at least the DJs, the, the conventional expression of this, and you just mentioned it in the U2 uh, Lyrics Born thing, is as a confrontation. It's U2 versus right. Lyrics Born. Like, I don't think there's really a winner one way or yeah, another there. Yeah. there like, what, is there a sort of rap battle aspect yeah. to this? Or why? what's the reason for the yeah, versus? That's thing? a good point. And what Tim's basically saying is that when you do look these up, a lot of them will be it's listed as, yeah, yeah. yeah, Jay-Z versus Guns N' Roses, you know, the almonds versus the Jacksons. Right. Um, but I think it's just, yeah, we're taking again, chocolate and peanut butter and which might seem diametrically opposed sitting there on your table. But when you put them together, mm, that's good. 
Okay, I, I mean, I just don't like the versus thing because I'm, right. I'm kind of a pacifistic, non-confrontational guy. <laughs> yes, you as are. As you know, I'm, I'm, Frank knows I'm a lover, not a fighter, right? And, uh, and, and you know, I, I just don't, like, you, why can't you two and Lyrics Born just get along together right. and make a beautiful song? So, I, actually, that, let's talk about that one because I think that's, can you dive into why you think that works? And, and tell us about the two songs. Yeah. And then what they come together and create. And then I've got a little story about it myself. So so this first one we'll go into was, I think, the first mashup I put on a Christmas mix. And it probably, to this day, is my favorite. And it's um, somebody's taking U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday. And then Lyrics Born is a Bay Area, which close to go. Tim's heart, um, uh, rapper, MC out there. And they basically take his they mash up the two and you know typically a lot of these and you know tim you'd asked me earlier you know do certain genres lend themselves to each other better and i really do think that laying down kind of hip-hop over a non-hip-hop genre whether it's rock jazz you know alternative um i feel like those tend to work super well one because you're able to kind of beef up um, the rhythm section a lot of times. So this one, you know, the thing I love about it is you take, you take that, um, you take that marching band snare that Larry Mullen Jr. starts off Sunday Bloody Sunday with. And when you hear this break into it, you hear that those first da, 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 da. But then we break right into the lyrics born part. And so your mind's almost going, wait, I thought this was that, this, but it's, really that or something I don't know and then the way that they were able to mash in and bring up you know there's a interesting strings part in Sunday Bloody Sunday in the original off war that people don't necessarily realize is there I mean there's a whole strings um violin section so the way that it he, he the person who mashed this up was able to bring that up in the mix and pull that out as as the complimentary, complimentary piece to the to the rapping to the rapping with with Larry Mullen Jr.'s beat providing the beat and I the other thing I would say is there's something um, the rapper lyrics born I guess is, is his name or whatever he there's something forward leaning and f- there's a lot of forward momentum yeah. in his rapping and there, there's something about the rhythm of it that plays very well to your point to that Marshall snare drum there and it, the, the I, I'm, I'm gonna mess it up but he he has this whole thing da, 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 that, that really and you'll hear it when we play it and, and we'll play it here in a second we need to get to these and you know and then the way that they play just you know edges iconic you know it's just that picked D that starts the, I mean, everybody knows that Sunday, bloody Sunday, but let's play it. And so you'll hear what we're talking about right here. That part where you're da 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 like that's very there's something very for, so the, my story about that is 
you had given me, I think, 10 years worth of Christmas mixes right. that I just loaded onto an iPod shuffle and I used to wear it while I was running. That song came up about mile 14 of a marathon I was running in New Hampshire. And I was third quarter of a marathon is always a challenging part of the marathon. Third quarter of every part third of Third quarter life. of everything. We, we won't even get into that. Um, but um, like that hit and I was like, oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I think I just hit I just hit it on repeat for like five miles of just because that was perfect running music. And just you know, roll forward on that. And the other great thing where they're they're really making you two into a hip hop song with that, not just because it's Lyric Bourne's um rapping over it, but like they take Bono's yeah. Yeah, they the yup. And, and they I love that he leaves it out in there. And, yeah. and they kind of stick it in there yeah. almost like Bono's like his hype man over on the other side of the stage with his yeah. own mic going yep yep and, and was the um, the part with the woman singing at the very beginning is that part of the lyrics born that's song? part of the original one okay and then you know and then, then hopefully you all heard how much they pu- they call out the strings on yeah the, it. the guitar yeah. yeah yeah so that that's the one that's my all time favorite one but I can let's take you through some others yeah let's 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 hit some others there's a uh, um you want to talk about the uh, the Guns N' Roses one next? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite ones. And again, disclaimer, this one's going to, because it involves Jay-Z. And I do think that this is a, this is purely from anecdotal evidence, but I do think Jay-Z might be the most used mashup, mashup source in a lot of ways. So this is, you know, if you can go find it, listen to the whole thing. We're not going to play all three minutes of it, but it's basically three Jay-Z songs mixed up over... A GNR classic. Now tuned into the motherfucking greatest. Looks like, looks, looks like Axel. Turn the music up in the headphones. Looks, looks like Axel. Boy, young. Feel right right here. Looks, looks like Axel. Yeah, damn. So you're gonna have to help me here because the name is I'm pretty sure at the beginning there when it says looks like Axel, looks like Axel, that is who is the longtime NBC? It's basketball. Marv Albert. It's Marv Albert. It sounds like Marv it is. Albert. I'm, I'm almost positive. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, the voice is unmistakably yeah. Marv Albert's. I don't so, know why he would be saying looks like Axel. So but. the brilliance of a mixing those up, and then it goes into um, uh, then it goes into a second one, and then the outro, which is brilliant. They lay down 99 problems um, on the outro as it completely cranks out of there. And then it's got this, whoever then brilliantly said, you know what would be perfect here? A little Marv Albert clip. I don't even know. What, what, what reason would Marv Albert have ever had to say the words looks like Axel? Who knows? I can see looks like Axel, like yeah. Nick Van right, Axel. Right, right. But it could be. That could be it. So that, so... Moving on here to the heart of these, um, this is one which I'm going to play probably a good minute of because the thing I love when I play folks mashups for the first time is really to see the look on their face as it starts to dawn on them what all songs are involved. And 
so this is a good example of, so when you hear it, start thinking about, I know these songs and then seeing where they come together. <laughs> So, a couple things there. I mean, one is, I mean, okay, obviously Allman Brothers yep. and Jackson 5. Yep. And it's almost like, I mean, it's almost a little bit like a joke because you've been hearing the, everybody knows the Allman Brothers tune there. And then when Michael Jackson hits it, like yeah. it's like a punchline. It's a little bit like you almost just start laughing. Now, there's a little bit of a, there. so when you, when you get to the chorus and you get kind of the almost, holy cow, it's actually naughty by nature there. Um, if yeah, you, that's the other thing I want to talk about is like, what's, what's the third piece? In well, there? but what's interesting is there's almost a reverse through line on this, because if you go listen to the original Naughty by Nature song, they're basically sampling the, the Jackson five it's, anyway. Yeah. So it goes Naughty by Nature back to the Jackson five with the almonds starting it off. But you know, when you, when you first hear it and Frank called this out earlier when we played it was. You, you called out Naughty by Nature before you even got to that part because you knew the beat. And so I love the fact that they lay down that beat. Yep. You've got the Jackson 5 as kind of the core with, with the Almond Brothers kind of on the beginning and end of it. Well, then, and there, you, you almost, after you listen to it a couple of times, you almost start to visualize them sort of all on stage together <laughs> right. and one stepping to the mic and the other yeah. stepping back or like, you know, it becomes this like the weirdest concert ever, yeah. right? Um, um, I want to jump into this one because uh, this one made a Christmas mix and people love this um, one because they love both songs. Yeah. And then just the way it jumps at you after the beginning because you know, everybody knows the intro here, but then um, no one expects what comes in. My Adidas walk through cops and doors and roam all over Coliseum floors.
Okay, so a couple things there I want to yeah. ask you about. Um, what's the drum part from? Where's the drum? No, from? that's probably somebody's just put in a, a program their own thing. Track. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's not. A I don't. One of the reasons I really like that one a lot is instead of just laying one song over somebody else's instrumental track, it's that mix. Of, now we're going to bring some Tom Petty in. You know, we're going to use some Run DMC. We're going to bring Tom Petty in, and it still somehow all fits together. Which, and that. So the the, the thing I want to talk to you about now is how does one do this? Yeah, and that's the truth. <laughs> that, that's why I think the the best ones are the holy cow. How did anybody think to put these two together? And some of it is, you know, and I think there obviously is some, you know, manipulation in whatever editing tools they're using because they've got to get the BPMs matched up almost like a DJ would on the dance floor. Um, and so, uh, you know, they might speed something up, slow something down to make that work. And that, I will tell you, when I was down the rabbit hole yesterday, listen, like, there's a couple of them where, like, they speed up like there was one in particular where they sped up the the rap track i want to say it's just like no no no, that's yeah. all wrong like yeah. that just doesn't feel right yeah and again my favorites are the ones that like holy cow who ever thought tom petty and run dmc so so you so one one of my questions you and i talked about this a little bit earlier was that you know you're a rhythm section guy you're a drummer i think of this as very much to your point driven by the rhythm section but it's not a mathematical equation by any stretch. There's some sort of savant inspiration that yeah, goes into these. Yeah, that's a good point because I do think that, I mean, you probably can't blend two songs together who's, you know, if the BPMs are probably more than, I don't know, probably 10 beats off, maybe more. Um, but if, if they find something where the flow is there close enough, then you can start tweaking and I think get one into the other. And again, this is all me, just it's supposition on my part. I would actually love to sit down and just look over the shoulder of a DJ that's actually putting one of these together and see how they really are. It, it reminds me a lot. You and I both wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Song Factory yeah. by John Seabrook. And he spends a lot of, I, first of all, highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in how music is made today. Fascinating. Um, but he spends a lot of time in there talking about these guys, these producers who are just hook machines. Like they, they know what a hook is the second they hear it and then how to build an entire song around a single melodic hook. And it's that same, I think it's that same kind yeah. of, savant genius yeah and you know the interesting thing with the song machine is also talking about how it's these modern producers you know dr luke um mm -hmm. and others who have it almost down to an algorithm yeah you know where they can basically say this hook works because of these algorithm i can't but it's right. still but it's yeah. not an algorithm that's in a machine i guess and i that that was the thing that it's in their head right um, and it, it, it almost it almost couldn't be reproduced. I mean, maybe at some point we're going to yeah, have artificial think they, intelligence yeah, that can do yeah. it. And, but I think they figured out like a good hook has these like seven qualities mm -hmm. to it. And there's almost kind of a checklist to it. And some of it is, you know, you know, some of it's BPM. Some of it is the way um, things repeat. You know, they talk about and again, not to go down another rabbit hole. But one thing they talk about is how they've learned in the age of Spotify and streaming that you've got to hook, no pun intended, 
um, a listener in in probably the first 10 seconds of a song now. Mm -hmm. So they'll uh, sometimes now it's in the songwriting production thought process that, all right, this is the hook to the song that actually might come during the first chorus or right. might come during the bridge or the outro. No, we literally have to start the song off that way. We gotta have the hook right we there. We gotta have the hook right there. Hook them at the beginning. And hook them at the beginning. Literally the meaning of the hook. So that so that's the very that's the most modern version of it. The other thing I want to jump back to and give credit to my wife on this one to, to Sarah, but I mean I was telling her what we were gonna be talking about today before I came over here, and she was like, Oh, you mean like the Episcopal Church? And I said, What do you mean? Like so it turns out the Episcopal hymnal Basically, there's like maybe 20 or 30 basic melodies yeah. in all of the Episcopal hymnal. And then everything else is just sort of moving lyrics around. And the organist can look at the bottom of the hymnal and see, oh, this is number 11. I play number 11. And the people out in the congregation are singing completely different words on any given hymn. But it's basically fitting fitting words to the same huh. music, different words to the yeah. same music. It, kind of the same idea. It's kind of like there's probably like 10 hymns based around Ode to Joy. Right. Right. Well, just like yeah. there are only seven stories in the world anyway, right? right? You know, right. Everything, everything boils down to. But yeah, Ode to Joy, um, whatever the melodies that, that underlies, um, I think of it as All Creatures of Our God and King, yeah. is used in about five other hymns as well. So so let me just run you through quickly a few others. Um, this one, I think, is just brilliant just because who thought of these two? So I'm going to start off. I'm going to go ahead and let you all know that the beginning of this is Radiohead from a song called High and Dry off their album, The Bends. Um, which which Chuck thinks is the seminal Radiohead album, and Tim I disagree, disagrees. and we're going to have another podcast we about that We might fight someday. about that one, but I, I love The Bends. But just wait for it, literally wait for it, um, and you'll be rewarded by where this goes. Radiohead mashed up with Marvin Gaye, and that is just brilliant. High healing, sexual and dry. Yeah, <laughs> man, it's awesome. So, um, uh, one or two more. Yeah, you you got one that combines three different oh, songs. Three, actually. maybe even four. You yeah. got to go deep, but this yeah. one. <laughs> now, this is for all you kids of the '80s. Yeah. Out there. So, I'm actually going to go ahead and throw out a lot of what this is, so you can listen for it. But this is The Police, and Elvis Costello, and Lionel Richie, and Bob Marley, and they're 
I swear I think there might be something else in there, but <laughs> here we go. So here's why that works, because I feel like there's kind of, it's almost like a two-on-two -two basketball game. You've got the police is wrapped around your finger, you've got Lionel Richie's hello, and those two things at the beginning are kind of working off each other okay. with that intro coming in. Then you've got Elvis Costello's watching the detectives and Bob Marley's exodus, and those two things are working off each other, and then they're coming in together to create basically what you just heard. And I, I guess I, my other thing is I think of the police retrospect, and I, I'm not a deep police guy, but I, I think of them as being somewhat reggae influenced. There was a lot, there were a lot of sort of reggae sounds oh, to what they did. And they so were, that, in that oh, sense, yeah. they kind of play well with Absolutely. Marley, right? And they were, they were unabashedly so, you know, their first, um, um, their first album was called Regatta de Blanc, which yeah. was basically a play on white reggae. Okay. And all, okay. and, and, you know, when Stuart Copeland will be the first, I mean, almost, I mean, I'd say half his beats are based on a reggae beat. Okay. So that, that yeah. sort of, that makes sense. It that makes they would perfect play well sense. together. You know, and then you've got the overlap, the Venn diagram of sort of the police and Elvis Costello being both sort of British new wave it, kind of yeah. thing. And then you got Lionel, Lionel Richie. Richie. Yeah. But also Lionel Richie always had that kind of island sound yeah. thing going so, too. So, right? I mean, that one I think is like, Forgive Me is like the best smorgasbord of all these songs coming together. Well, and so what's interesting was on, on my on my rabbit hole journey, one of the ones that got served up to me was um, it opens with actually a, a TV clip of like Elvis Costello interviewing Bruce Springsteen and then goes into Springsteen's Born to Run, laid over Elvis and the Attractions, Pump It Up. Huh. Which it, it were like, it technically works. This was one of those where I just listened to it though. Like it fits, but I was just like, man, this doesn't, I mean, maybe, maybe mileage may vary. Some people may really like it, but I was like, no, that just doesn't do it for yeah. me. Um, and I'm sort of, I'm a little bit of a Springsteen purist in that regard, but, but, uh, that, that one works for me in a way that the other one didn't. And I, th I think, but I think for a lot of these, there's sort of a, a mileage may vary, yeah. um, so what works for some of us may not work for all of us. Well, here, here's the last one I'll play. And if, if Jay-Z, I think, is probably the most, I guess, used slash sampled, last matched up. Most matched up. Most matched up. I think the Beasties, Beastie Boys, are probably second. Um, so I've got a ton that, that involve them. The thing I love about this one is 
the song that they are mashing up with is inherently funky to begin with. So if you didn't know the first song, if you didn't know it was a separate standalone song, and you'll know it, um, you could you would think that this is something that the Beasties might have done in the studio anyway. <laughs> and that's what I love about it. So that's when you get into this. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So when you come in like, uh, you know, the Jane's Addiction bass line, Steve Perkins on drums, it's just this awesome, even they, you know, they keep the dogs barking in there. <laughs> like, if you'd never heard Ben Cott stealing before, never heard of Jane's Addiction and heard that song, you would have thought this is just the Beasties it doing their the thing Beasties, yeah. in, in the studio. So that's what I, yeah. There's another one I like, and we won't play this one, but you can look it up as um, the, a mix of uh, Intergalactic, obviously, BC Boy Staple, and uh, R.E.M.'s Orange Crush. That's also um, pretty good. You want, you want to do it? I can do it. Right. Um, that one is this. That's one they had to speed up the Beastie Boys a had fair to, amount. Yeah, they did to match the BPMs of, yeah. uh, um, of the of Orange, Orange Crush. Crush. Okay. So, you know. And that's one also where it's a little bit of a punchline. You really are expecting uh, Michael Stipe to come in with follow me, don't follow yeah. me. Um, and instead you get, you get um, the, the Beasties. I've, like Tim and I could keep going. Like, <laughs> like I got a whole lot more of these. Um, but you know, we want it. We need. We, to, we, we do want to respect your time. Yeah, and we and need Frank's probably, time. And and the thought is similar to the covers one. You know, if you've got ones that you yeah. know of that you love, send them our way. We might do another one with with ones that you've sent in and more that I've got that we could keep going down that rabbit hole. Yep. yep. Um, um, and then you know, look, linerpodcast at gmail If you've got episode ideas, things you want to hear us talk about, suggestions for guests, anything like that. Goal is to do a handful more of these of just the two of us and then maybe start talking to some guests or even thinking about taking the show on the road potentially. So, um, so would love to, uh, to hear your thoughts, keep the, uh, the feedback coming and, and we appreciate y'all listening.